You know, last weekend, uh, we looked at the meaning of the year that we're coming into. Last weekend was sort of the first fruits of the year. And we're going to follow that up today with the first fruits of the month. Because one of the things we saw about this year, uh, the letter for this year is the letter for first fruits. First fruits is very important this year. First fruits is a key to coming into the blessing of God this year. And God wants you to come in to his blessing in a greater way this year. Tell your neighbor, God really does want to bless you. And so we're looking today at the first fruits of the month of Tishri, and our message for today is the Hebrew month of Tishri, the month of the tribe of Ephraim, discovering God's roadmap to revival. Amen. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. Holy Spirit, move among us, rest down upon us, rest down upon each one joining us on the web. We're all linked together in the Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you. And we want to welcome you to our first fruit celebration for the month of Tishri. Because Tishri is a very important month in God's calendar. I mean, all the months are important. It's important to know what God is saying each month. But I think if there was one month that was more important than any other, it's probably this one. Tishri means beginning. In the Hebrew calendar, Tishri starts a new year. Exodus 34, 22 calls Tishri the turning of the year. And we just had our head of the year conference and we celebrated turning over a new year in the Hebrew calendar. And that new year began on the first day of Tishri. Now, while Tishri starts a new year, in God's yearly cycle of feasts, Tishri is the seventh month. And seven is the number of completion or perfection. God's yearly cycle of feasts began at Passover. At Passover, God says, this will be the first month for you. Then in the third month, we had Pentecost. And finally, in the seventh month, the cycle of feasts is completed. It reaches its climax in the Feast of Tabernacles. That's this month. So Tishri is not only the start of the year, it marks the high point of the biblical feasts. Now, I think God wants us to understand the biblical feast. And unfortunately, a lot of us, even if we grew up in church, that was part of the Bible we were never taught and I believe God wants us to understand them. Uh, you know, there are three main feasts in God's cycle of feasts. First is Passover. It's all about redemption and cleansing. We all know the story of Passover with the Moses and the children of Israel in Egypt. They put the blood on the doorpost and they were redeemed by the blood. Then they had to search out for leaven or impurity and cleanse their homes from impurity. So Passover is redemption and cleansing, but then came Pentecost, and it's really a celebration of God's provision. It was the first fruits of the wheat harvest. God brings forth bread from the earth to provide our physical needs. But it was also when God gave Israel the law at Mount Sinai, that was his provision for them under the old covenant, 
And then it was also the day God poured out the Holy Spirit on the church in Acts chapter 2. And that's God's provision for us under the new covenant. Then came the long, hot summer. And you get in the fall to tabernacles. And tabernacles is all about the glory of God. It's about dwelling in God's presence. Now, I think you can understand these three feasts better if we compare it with the three courts in the tabernacle of Moses. Remember, Moses' tabernacle had three courts. The outer court was a place of redemption and cleansing. It had the altar where you were redeemed by the blood. It had the cleansing, the, the, the labor, where the priests were cleansed from impurity. Then you moved into the holy place. And it was a place where God was worshipped for his provision. There was a table of showbread. Every week, 12 fresh loaves of bread were set out there. It was a way of acknowledging that God brings forth bread from the earth to provide for his people. There was the menorah, the seven-branched lampstand. The book of Revelation tells us that symbolized the Holy Spirit of God. It was the only source of revelation and illumination in the holy place. And finally, there was the altar of incense showing that we have access to God. And then there was the thick, heavy curtain called the veil. And on the other side of that was the Holy of Holies where the glory of God dwelt. The only piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, and that is where the presence of God rested in the midst of his people. Now look at the diagram of the biblical feast, then look at the diagram of the tabernacle of Moses. Does anybody see any similarity? And I think if you catch that, you understand the feast because God's yearly feast cycle is really a journey into the presence of God. It's like walking through the tabernacle. You start at the outer court, you move through the inner court, and you end up in the Holy of Holies. You always end the cycle in the presence of God. God's cycle of feast is designed to bring you into a fresh experience of God's glory every year. Now, leading up to the Feast of Tabernacles, there's a series of very special events called the Fall Feasts. And the Fall Feasts all take place in the month of Tishri. The fall feasts are the most important time in the biblical calendar because they really form a 21-day countdown designed to bring us into the presence of God at the Feast of Tabernacles. They are a roadmap to revival. You know, I've studied revival most of my life, been involved in the Jesus movement, been other places where revivals broke out. And what I found is there are three, there's, there are some key steps that always lead to revival for any individual or nation. And when I studied the biblical feast, I was surprised because I learned that God incorporated the steps to revival into the fall feasts. God's plan was that by celebrating the fall feasts, you would get a taste of revival every year. Now, the fall feasts begin with the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets starts on the first day of the month of Tishri. 
This year it began at sundown on September the 6th. And God only gave one commandment about this day, and that is all of his people should try to hear the blast of the shofar. We did that ahead of the year at our conference last. We heard the shofar blast. If anybody wasn't here, let's go ahead and have another shofar blast. Whoa! Now, did you feel something happen inside when you heard that? See, that's designed by God to do something in your spirit when you hear that sound. That's why God said, all you need to do that, that day, make sure you hear the shofar. See, the trumpets was a call to awaken. The, another name for this feast, the Jews called it the day of the awakening blast. Because when you hear a trumpet, it wakes you up. And sometimes we need a wake-up call. Over the past year, there may have been times when you messed up and you sinned. Anybody that didn't sin last year? Your fellowship with God was broken. You lost the experience of God's blessing. We need to be called to alertness. You know, almost every revival in history, you can point to a specific event that was the wake-up call that prompted the revival. And when the trumpets call us to attention, it's time to move into a very special time, a time to turn and return. And the 10 days after the Feast of Trumpets are called the Days of Awe. Everybody say awe. Because when God gives you a wake-up call, it's time to turn from everything that hinders and return to God. It's the time to draw close to God and say, Lord, show me anything that is hindering my walk with you. And when you've done that, you're ready for the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is a day to be restored. It's a day to put all of your sins under the blood of the Lamb and be fully restored to God and His purposes. It was on the Day of Atonement uh, in the tabernacle that the, the priest would take the blood of the sacrifice, go into the Holy of Holies, and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Now this year, the Day of Atonement began at sundown September 15th. And the Day of Atonement is a day to confess your sins, make sure any hindrances to fellowship are removed. Now if you did not do that on September 15th, I've got good news. <laughs> it's not too late. <laughs> you can still do that. You can do it today. Get with God. Confess any sin that he shows you. Claim 1 John 1, 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And see, once you've done that, you can fully and freely enjoy fellowship with God knowing that you're forgiven. Now, if you're not sure how to do that, I want to recommend a book it's a book that I wrote, but it's still a good book. <laughs> it's called Set Yourself Free. It's a self-deliverance manual. It's designed to show you how to be free from the impression, oppression of the devil. You, we, we have it here at Glory of Zion. You can also order it from Amazon. But chapter two in this book is called, and there's an exercise called Removing the Enemy's Opportunity. And it takes you step by step through the process 
of dealing with any sin and guilt in your life. And it shows you how to remove any hindrances in your fellowship with God so you can come joyfully into his presence. And so if you're having a hard time getting free from that feeling of sin and guilt, I would recommend this because God wants you to be free. Now, when we've had the Feast of Trumpets, the Days of Awe, and the Day of Atonement, it's time for the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is a week of joyful celebration. This year it begins the evening of September 20th, that's tomorrow, and ends the evening of September 27th. And this is a week to experience God's presence and rejoice. The main command that God gives for this week is this, rejoice. Tell your neighbor, rejoice. Get a little bit more joy. You have a little bit, but you need a little bit more. Tell your neighbor one time, one more time, it's time to rejoice. Because tabernacles is a celebration of God's glory. It celebrates his presence dwelling with us. Now, the Hebrew name for tabernacles is Sukkot. Everybody say Sukkot. In Hebrew, that is the plural of the word Sukkah. Everybody say Sukkah. Free Hebrew lesson there. Now, a sukkah is a tabernacle, a tent, or a temporary shelter. So tabernacles really is the feast of temporary shelters. Because when Israel left Egypt, they lived in tents, in temporary shelters in the wilderness. And at Mount Sinai, God looked down and saw everybody living in these little temporary shelters. And he went to Moses and said, build a temporary shelter for me too, so I can come down and live among my people. And so they made a temporary shelter for God right in the middle of their camp. It's called the Tabernacle of Moses. And God's glory came down and was manifested powerfully in their midst. And that's why part of celebrating tabernacles is building a sukkah, a temporary shelter, because it's a reminder of how God lived among his people. Now, when the presence of God dwells tangibly among us, we call that revival. That's what revival is. It's when God visits. It's when his presence comes, when you experience his glory. Tabernacles is a time to have a taste of revival every year. Now, Tabernacles begins tomorrow night at sundown, and it lasts for one week. So this is a good week to plan some special things. You can plan some special times to meet with God. Spend relaxed times in his word. Get together with family and with friends. Share testimonies of God's goodness. Eat your favorite foods. Thank God for his blessings. And especially if you have children, although it's great even if you don't have children, build a tabernacle, a sukkah, a temporary shelter, Here's how they described it in Nehemiah's day. In Nehemiah 8, he said, Go into the hills and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees to make sukkahs. 
So the people built sukkahs on their roofs and in their courtyards, and their joy was very great. Let me tell you, you build a sukkah, you'll get joyful. And your kids will love it. I mean, how many times have you come home and found the kids drug the chairs out into the middle of the living room, put sheets over them, and made a fort right there in the house? They love that. Say, guess what? This week, we're going to make a fort with God. We're going to eat there, and I'm going to tell you some stuff that God has done. See, to the Jews, tabernacles was a joyful family celebration. They built a sukkah. Some of them would actually live in it for a week. Others just gather there with friends or they eat meals in it. But it's a way to celebrate the fact that God wants his presence to live with us and to remember what, how God lived among his people. So why not build a sukkah? You know, you can build all kinds of sukkahs. Be creative. You can build a model sukkah. You can build a backyard sukkah. You can build an indoor sukkah. You can build a sukkah in a church. You can have a sukkah on a balcony. You can have a wooden sukkah. You can have a fabric sukkah. You can have a rustic sukkah. You can have a sukkah in a tent. You can decorate your sukkah. You can light up your sukkah. You can party in your sukkah. Man, that looks like fun. You can picnic in your sukkah. You can even sleep in your sukkah. But when you enter your sukkah, remember this. God wants to tabernacle with you. Enjoy the fun. You know, so often we think serving God is so serious and sad and somber. No, God wants you to have fun of celebrating his presence. He wants you to anticipate, to call out to God for his glory. So at Tabernacles, God wants you to experience his glory. He wants to meet you in your sukkah. And he doesn't want you to do this just as a ritual. He wants it to be a reality. You know, when we first found out about the Feast of Tabernacles, we were excited. We built a tabernacle in our backyard. We would go in there, and it was like, oh, wow, this is so much fun. I mean, here we are. We got a sukkah. We're outside. You can see the stars up through the holes in the ceiling. And we would invite friends over, and we would eat and drink and celebrate and share testimonies. It was, it was just a wonderful, fun time. And then one year... Our friend Eleanor, the Eskimo dancer from Alaska, happened to be in town. And she's, she's very prophetic and she's very sensitive to Holy Spirit. And she had just been through the Issachar course on the feast, so she knew tabernacles was when God wanted to meet you in the sukkah. And so we invited Eleanor to come and join us in our sukkah, one that she was so excited. So I'm going to meet with God in the sukkah. And so we got all our food and stuff ready, and we went out to the sukkah, and we're all ready to just have a great time. And she walked into the sukkah and said, oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. And the strangest thing happened. The glory of God fell <laughs> in our sukkah. I mean, I could hardly even stand up. I said, Lord, what happened? And this is what he said. He said, you, you have built the sukkah and you've celebrated tabernacles as a ritual. 
It's a good ritual. It's a fun ritual. It's a biblical ritual. But it's still a ritual. Eleanor came because she wanted to experience my glory. And because that's what she came for, that's what she got. So let me just say, have fun in tabernacles. Enjoy it. God wants you to rejoice, but also know this. He also really does want to meet with you. Not as a ritual. He wants you to know, I've been in the presence of God. Now, some people think these feasts are just for Jews. But the Bible says, particularly about tabernacles, it's also a feast for Christians. The Bible says this is a feast for Gentiles who worship the Lord. Zechariah 14 says the time will come when people from among the Gentiles will worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. How many of you are Gentiles who worship the King, the Lord Almighty? See, if you're a Gentile who worships the God of Israel, God says, this feast is for you. Now, there's a second reason why tabernacles is important for Christians. I share this every year, and I love to share it. I don't get tired of it at all. But to explain, I want to answer the question, when was Jesus born? Now, we know it was not December 25th because shepherds in Israel don't keep their flocks out in the field in late December. And so some people say, well, you know, we can't really know. But just maybe we can. Luke 1.5 is an interesting verse. It tells us that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was a priest of the order of Avayah. Now, why in the world did it say that? You know, most of us would read that and just go on to the next verse. But see, the priesthood was divided into different orders, and they each were assigned specific times each year to serve in the temple. In 1 Chronicles 24, it says, The priest of the order of Aviah served in the temple during the 12th through the 18th of the month of Sivan, which is in the month of June. So that was when Zechariah had his turn to go to Jerusalem and minister in the temple. And during the days when Zechariah served in the temple, an angel appeared to him. And the angel told him, when you go back home, your wife is going to get pregnant, and she's going to give birth to the forerunner of the Messiah. You're going to call him John. Now, let, let, let me show you how this works out time-wise. The angel appeared to Zacharias on the, sometime during the 12th through the 18th of Sivan. On the 18th of Sivan, he packs up his stuff and travels back home. Now, assuming that he got to work on his angelic assignment pretty quickly, <laughs> it would not be hard to think that Elizabeth may have conceived around the 25th of Sivan. Now, if she conceived on the 25th of Sivan and had a normal pregnancy of 285 days, then John the Baptist would have been born around the 15th of Nisan. Now, here's why that's significant. That is Passover. Now, the Jews have long held a tradition that Elijah would come at Passover. Many observant Jews set an empty extra place at the table every Passover meal 
in case Elijah shows up. And so I think it's significant that John the Baptist, who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, would be born on Passover. Now Luke 1.36 says Elizabeth, Zachariah's wife, was six months pregnant when Jesus was conceived. Now if she got pregnant around the 25th of Sivan, she would have gotten to her six month on the 25th day of Kislev, which just happens to be Hanukkah. So Jesus, the light of the world, was conceived at Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights. Now, if Jesus was conceived on the 25th of Kislev, and Mary had a normal pregnancy of 285 days, then the birth of Jesus would have been on the 15th day of the month of Tishri, which just happens to be the Feast of Tabernacles. Tell your neighbor, happy birthday to Jesus. And I think that is why the Apostle John describes the birth of Jesus this way. It, what it literally says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Now, you know, I can't prove this, but it, I think it's very likely. And if this was true, it sheds some new light on the Christmas story. Luke 2 says, Mary brought forth her child and laid him, and our, our translations usually say, in a manger. The Greek word for manger there is fatne. It means a manger, a stall, a stable, or a temporary shelter. The Hebrew equivalent of fatne is sukkah, or tabernacle. You know, Genesis 33, Jacob made sukkahs for his cattle. Now, during the feast, there would be no rooms at the inn, but there were sukkahs everywhere. And we could translate Luke 2.7 this way. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a sukkah. And so on that feast of tabernacles, the glory of God came into that sukkah and Jesus the Messiah was born. And so God's plan for beginning a new year looks like this. First you wake up. You hear the sound of the trumpet. Then you turn and return. You draw near to God. You're filled with awe at his love and his mercy. And then you're restored to God. You confess every sin and, be, and, and are forgiven. And finally you rejoice and celebrate his blessing and his glory. And let me tell you, those steps will bring any individual, any church, or any nation into the experience of revival. And they all take place in the month of Tishri. Tell your neighbor, happy Tishri. Now to the Jews, the month of Tishri is associated with the tribe of Ephraim. So if we understand the tribe of Ephraim, we'll understand some more things about this month. To understand Ephraim, we first need to know some things about Ephraim's dad, who was Joseph. See, Ephraim's grandfather Jacob was a very rich man, and Joseph was his favorite son. And to show his love for Joseph, Jacob made him a richly ornamented tunic with many colors that was a sign he was not expected to work in the fields like his brothers. 
And the result was his brothers hated him. They resented him. And then to make matters worse, Joseph told his brothers about his prophetic dreams that one day they would all come and bow down before him. You know, not every prophetic dream is something you should just tell everybody. That was the final straw. So one day his brothers caught Joseph in the field, beat him, stripped him of his tunic, and threw him in a pit, planning to kill him. But before the others got around to killing him, some Ishmaelite traders passed by on their way to Egypt. And the brothers decided to sell Joseph as a slave instead of killing him. And so Joseph found himself in Egypt. He was sold as a slave into the house of an Egyptian official named Potiphar. But God blessed him in Potiphar's house. And God blessed Potiphar because he was there and he was put in charge of everything in the household. You know, that's what God wants. Wherever God has placed you, he wants to bless you and he wants to bless that place because you're there. But when... He resisted Potiphar's wife's attempt to seduce him. She falsely accused him of trying to rape her, and Joseph was thrown into prison. But God blessed Joseph even in prison. You know, God can bless you wherever you land. The warden put Joseph in charge of everything, and because of his walk with God, he gained a reputation for being able to interpret dreams. And then one day... Joseph was brought to Pharaoh's palace. Pharaoh had had a dream that nobody could interpret, and somebody remembered Joseph. And because Joseph could interpret the dream, Pharaoh highly honored him. He was set free from prison. He was placed in a position of great honor and responsibility in Egypt. Pharaoh gave him Asenath, the daughter of a man named Potipharah, to be his wife. Now, I have a theory about that. I think Potiphar is just another name for Potiphar. And I think Pharaoh checked out Joseph's story and vindicated him by giving him Potiphar's daughter as his wife. And so Joseph found himself living as a prince in Egypt. He lived in great luxury, but he couldn't really enjoy it because his life had been nothing but suffering and trauma and loss. His mom died when he was a child. His brothers rejected him and plotted to kill him. He was sold into slavery, held captive in a foreign land. He was separated from his father and never expected to see him again. Finally, he was falsely accused and thrown into prison. It's hard to deal with things like that. I think the memory of all of his suffering haunted him. But then something happened that changed everything. Joseph's Egyptian wife, Asenath, became pregnant and gave birth to a beautiful baby boy. And when he saw that child, something happened in his heart. Genesis 41:51 says, Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, which means causing to forget. For God has made me forget all my sufferings and all my father's house. And then she gave birth again. Joseph named his secondborn son Ephraim. Ephraim means double fruitfulness. When Joseph saw Ephraim, he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And the month of Ephraim is a month to be fruitful and multiply.
Now, Ephraim and Manasseh are significant because they are both pictures of the one new man. For the first time among the patriarchs, a Jew and a Gentile had come together to birth something new. You know, Israel has had a long history of loss and rejection. But as the one new man arises, they'll be able to forget the past and be fruitful in a whole new way. And Ephraim was a blessed tribe. When Joseph came down to Egypt, he adopted Manasseh and Ephraim as his own. And when the time came for Jacob to give the children a blessing, he switched his hands and gave the blessing of the firstborn to Ephraim rather than Manasseh. He said, Manasseh will be great, but Ephraim will be greater. He said they would be the picture of ultimate blessing in Israel. He said, in your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. You know, a lot of Jewish parents do that on Friday nights when they bless their children. Part of the blessing over each of the sons is, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And Ephraim was greatly blessed. When Israel entered the promised land, they were led by Joshua, a man of Ephraim. Ephraim was given a portion in the very center of the land. The hill country of Ephraim was one of the most mentioned places in the Old Testament. Ephraim contained the spiritual centers of Shechem and Shiloh and Bethel. Mount Gerizim, where God's blessings were proclaimed, was in Ephraim. Samuel, the last of the judges and the first of the prophets, was from Ephraim. 20,000 from Ephraim joined with David at Hebron, and they were described as mighty men of valor, famous in their father's households. Psalm 60 and Psalm 108, the Lord calls Ephraim the helmet of his head. And when Israel and Judah split, Ephraim became the dominant tribe in the kingdom of Israel. And the name Ephraim eventually became a synonym for the entire kingdom. But in spite of all the blessings, Ephraim messed up. When the northern tribes rebelled against David's line, they were led by Jeroboam of Ephraim. The ten northern tribes made Jeroboam king, but he feared that if the people continued to go to Jerusalem to worship, they might eventually reject him and reunite with Judah. And so Jeroboam reintroduced the worship of the golden calf. He set up two golden calves and told the people, you've been going up to Jerusalem long enough, here is your God. Many in Ephraim refused to worship the golden calves, and they moved south to Judah, but much of the tribe joined in the pagan worship. Ephraim's rebellion is summed up in Psalm 78. Ephraim did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done and the wonders he had shown them. Now Ephraim experienced some times of repentance. When King Asa led Judah in revival, many from Ephraim defected to Judah and joined in. When Hezekiah held his great Passover feast, many from Ephraim humbled their hearts and came. Touched by the Lord, they broke down the idols in their territory. But the repentance was only temporary. And because of continuing idolatry, God allowed the ten northern tribes to be conquered by the Assyrians. 
Many were taken as captives. The Assyrians took the leaders, the warriors, the educated, the skilled artisans. All that was left was a scattered remnant, the poorest of the poor, living among the ruins. And then the Assyrians resettled the area with Gentiles from other conquered nations. And Ephraim eventually intermarried with the Gentiles. Now the good news was that meant the Gentiles learned about the God of Israel the bad news was they continued pagan worship as well. And then in 2 Kings 22, down in the southern kingdom of Judah, a 16-year-old king named Josiah leads the nation in revival. Let me tell you, you never know who God's going to use to bring revival. Tell your neighbor, it might be you. And Judah turns back to God. They restore the temple. They rediscover God's word. They humble themselves. They repent of their sins. They inquire of the Lord. They sought out Huldah, the prophetess. They removed all of their idols, and they celebrated God's redemption with a great Passover feast. And the revival spreads. And the first place it spread to was Ephraim. Second Chronicles 34, in the towns of Ephraim and the surrounding ruins, Josiah tore down the altars and destroyed the idols. See, the Assyrians had been a wake-up call. If Ephraim was a humbled remnant living among the ruins, and Josiah comes and tears down the idolatrous altars, and Ephraim turned back to God. And the last F reference to Ephraim in the Old Testament was in Zechariah 10, which pictures Ephraim as fully restored to the Lord and rejoicing before him. It says the Ephraimites will be like mighty warriors and their hearts will be glad as with wine and their children will see it and be joyful and their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. Now by New Testament times, Ephraim was called by a new name. They called it Samaria. It was populated by a mixed group, Israelites who had intermarried with Gentiles. Most of Ephraim now worshiped the true God, but they didn't follow all the traditions of the rabbis in Jerusalem. And so they were not accepted by the Jews. In fact, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They were impure. They were an unclean mix of Jew and Gentile. The Jews tried to avoid Samaritans at all costs. As a matter of fact, to travel from Judea on the south to Galilee on the north, the Jews would take a detour across the Jordan River to avoid having to go through Samaria. And that's why what Jesus did in John chapter 4 was so significant. It says Jesus left Judea to go into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, why did he have to pass through Samaria? Nobody else went through Samaria to get to Galilee. Because he had a divine appointment in Ephraim. In John 4, he stops to rest at a well by a little village in Ephraim called Sychar. And a woman of Ephraim, a Samaritan woman, comes out to draw water. And Jesus asked her for a drink, and she's shocked that he would speak to her. Because Jews usually refused to even speak to Samaritans. And she was not only a Samaritan, she was a woman with a bad reputation. Her own people didn't talk to her. It was normal for people to refuse to talk to her. She was an outcast. 
As the story unfolds, we learn she had gone from husband to husband, and after her fifth husband, she gave up the pretense of marriage and just moved in with her boyfriend. And in that society, she was viewed as little more than a prostitute. She didn't even come out in the morning to draw water when the other women did. She waited till the other women were gone and came down to the well alone because she knew she wasn't welcome. She was the lowest of the low. But Jesus had something for this woman of Ephraim. He said, if you knew who I am, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Whoever drinks the water I give shall never thirst. The water I give will become a fountain of water welling up to eternal life. And as she listens to his words, something happens in this woman. God pierces her heart and faith is awakened. She ran back to town, brought the whole village to Jesus. And she didn't stop there. Early Christian writers tell us this woman's name was Fotine or Fotina. And after she met Jesus, she led her five sisters and two sons to the Lord, and they all became tireless evangelists. She was later sent out as an apostle. She went to Carthage in Africa to proclaim the gospel there. She was martyred during the persecutions under Nero, but she is honored as the first person in history to proclaim the gospel. Jesus visits Ephraim several times. We see him there again in John chapter 11. After he raised Lazarus from the dead, the Jewish leaders began plotting to kill him. But it wasn't God's time for his death. So he takes his disciples to a village of Ephraim, and there he finds safe haven until Passover. When the Judeans were trying to kill him, Jesus found a place of safety in Ephraim. You know, the hero of one of Jesus' most uh, famous parables was a man from Ephraim. We call him the Good Samaritan. The priest and the Levite from Jerusalem did not have the heart of God, but the Samaritan did. And then in Acts chapter 8, Ephraim was the first church planted after Jerusalem. We're told Philip went to a city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. Because with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. Ephraim joyfully received the gospel. And they sent apostles like Photina to the ends of the earth. Ephraim had messed up. They suffered the penalty for their idolatry. They were conquered by Assyria, but God had not given up on Ephraim. Ephraim was a forerunner. Ephraim was a prototype of the one new man. In Ephraim, Jew and Gentile learned to function together as one new man in the Messiah. So it's very appropriate that Tishri is the month of Ephraim. Because the story of Ephraim really is the story of the fall feasts. Ephraim sinned. They messed up. They fell away from God. They lost the blessing, but they had a wake-up call. The trumpets of the attacking Assyrian army. And the remnant of Ephraim repented of their sins. They turned back to God. 
and they entered a time of great rejoicing in the Lord. Let me tell you, if you're not as close to God as you once were, God wants you to experience the same kind of restoration that Ephraim did. In the month of Tishri, follow the roadmap to revival. Wake up! Respond to the sound of the trumpet. Turn and return. You, you want to blow the trumpet one more time? Go ahead. It's worth waiting for. Let the trumpet do something in your spirit when you hear it. Whoa! So respond to the sound of the trumpet. Let it stir something in you. Then turn and return. Draw near to God. Be filled with awe at his love and mercy. And then be restored to God. Confess every sin and be forgiven. God wants you to be so free in your walk with him that you know there is nothing hindering fellowship. There's nothing that would cause you to be rejected or turned away when you come to God. God welcomes your presence. And then celebrate tabernacles. Build a sukkah. Seek God's presence. Experience God's glory. And rejoice. Lord, we thank you for this time of year. Lord, we thank you for the month of Tishri. Lord, we thank you that you want to fully restore us. And Lord, you want us to experience your glory your presence, and be filled with rejoicing this month. Lord, I release an anointing of joy on each one here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah.